This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ is here fully endorsed by Almighty God. The term son of God, as in this is my beloved son, at the very least means to communicate that Jesus reflects the character and attributes of God perfectly, that he does the work of God exclusively, and that he inherits the riches of God entirely. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Jesus reflects the character of God perfectly. He does the work of God exclusively, and he inherits the riches of God entirely. There's a lot going on in that simple statement and a lot going on in this third chapter of Matthew's Gospel. In this chapter, we hear about the forerunner to the ministry of Jesus, and we begin to hear about the preparation of Jesus himself. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 3. I mentioned in the last episode that most scholars understand chapters 1 and 2 as presenting the prologue to Matthew's gospel. That's new content, by the way. I mentioned in the introduction episode that most scholars assume now that Matthew had Mark's gospel open in front of him when he wrote to his original audience. He didn't cut many things out. In fact, about 90% of Mark's gospel is reproduced in Matthew, but he did add things. He added this prologue that we've just talked about, and he adds a lot of teaching material. But here in Matthew 3, he is basically just reproducing Mark 1, 1 to 20. You can see that for yourself if you have two Bibles open in front of you as we work through this material. Most scholars give this section some version of the title, The Gospel of the Kingdom. We hear John the Baptist preaching it, and then we hear Jesus preaching it in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Let's pause there. All of the Gospels present John the Baptist as a forerunner of Jesus Christ. And whenever all four Gospels mention something or someone, obviously they consider that person or that event to be very significant. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus identifies John the Baptist with Elijah. He says, If you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Closed quote. So obviously in some way that requires faith and sensitivity to understand, John is Elijah who is to come. Jesus seems to be referring here to the prophecy made by the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 4. In verses 5 to 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction, Closed quote. So many years after the actual Elijah was dead, Malachi the prophet says that God will send Elijah. We understand that to mean a person with the mantle or anointing of Elijah, or 
a person exercising an Elijah-like ministry. God will send such a person to prepare the people of Israel for the day of the Lord. This prophet will effect a moral and relational revival that will position the Jewish people to respond appropriately on the day of the Lord. That's the prophecy, and Jesus in Matthew 11 applies it to John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel also applied that prophecy to John the Baptist. He said to Zechariah, John's father, in Luke 1, 13 to 17, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, closed quote. So, obviously John is an important figure. He was sent by God to get people ready for the day of the Lord. And we see him doing that here in Matthew chapter 3. Look at verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how you prepare for the day of the Lord. By repenting of your sins. That's step one, right? You have to let go of your sin in order to take hold of Christ. That's true, and that's good advice in every generation. We should probably take a minute here as well and define the word repent. It's a very important word for John and then also for Jesus. D.A. Carson defines the word this way. He says, What is meant is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance, closed quote. So John is saying, we've got to turn around. We're going the wrong way. We are broken and lost and wayward, and we need to stop, turn around, and look to Jesus. And we better do it quick because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven refers to the reign of God over all things through the person of Jesus Christ. That is what is at hand. The Greek word that is used means that which is near. R.T. France says that the use of the word in the perfect tense introduces a state of affairs which is already beginning and which demands immediate action, closed quote. So John is saying that the king is here. Therefore, the kingdom is at hand. It is near. It is as near as Jesus. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. I have a question I've been wanting to ask for years, okay? You said in the podcast audio that according to John the Baptist, the king is here. Jesus is the king, and the king has come. So, at least in some sense, the kingdom has come. And yet, I remember as a kid being taught to pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, What? which sounds like a prayer for something to happen that hasn't happened. So which is it? Has the kingdom come or is the kingdom coming? Is John the Baptist right or is the Lord's prayer right? Can you maybe untangle that for me a little? (laughs) 
Well, I don't know if I can untangle it completely, and I don't know that it wants to be untangled completely. Uh, There's a sense in which the answer to your question is both. Uh, John is right to say that the kingdom of God is at hand uh, because it is as near as the king himself. If you are in right relationship to Jesus, then you are in the kingdom. So John is right. But the Lord's Prayer is right, too, because there's also a sense in which the kingdom, for now, is always coming. Uh, That sounds complicated. (laughs) It is, I guess. But think of it like this. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over all things through the person of Jesus Christ. By virtue of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he has won a total, sweeping, decisive victory. And as the Bible says in multiple places, he is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase is all over the New Testament. You can find that in Romans 8, Ephesians 1, uh, Colossians 3, Hebrews 12, 1 Peter 3. It's everywhere. So Jesus is the king, and the king is seated and reigning right now at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise the Lord. And if you are in Christ through faith, then you are reigning right now, in a sense, as well. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. Paul says that in Ephesians 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, listen, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, close quote. So Jesus is reigning, and if we are in him, then we are, in some sense, already in the kingdom and already sitting and reigning with him in the heavenly places. So, in a mysterious sense, you might say, the kingdom is already among us. Jesus said that in Luke 17. He said, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So that is the sense in which I think we can say the kingdom of God is here now. It is here everywhere that Christ is recognized and honored as Lord. It is here in every heart that makes room for Christ as Lord. It is here in that sense, and it is growing in that sense. But there is also a sense in which the kingdom is coming and will come at some point in the future. The Apostle Paul talked about that as well. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Closed quote. So that is the kingdom in its final consummated sense. When every enemy has been destroyed, when all sin and all causes of sin have been rooted out and cast into the eternal fire, then shall the righteous shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever. Thanks be to God. The reason for the delay between the present sense and that future sense is to maximize the opportunity for people to enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. So the urgent matter for us today is extending that invitation. That is literally what it means to preach the good news. The good news is that Satan is defeated, death is defeated, sin can be forgiven, hearts can be changed, people can be adopted, and a whole new world 
is coming. Yes. Thanks be to God. That sounds awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. So when I pray in the Lord's Prayer, then thy kingdom come, what exactly am I praying for there? Am I praying for the kingdom to spread from heart to heart? Or am I praying for Jesus to return and reign physically, tangibly, and eternally over all things to the glory of the Father forever? Well, I think it's both, Uh, but with the emphasis probably on the first of those. Uh, John Calvin, for example, says here, the substance of this prayer is that God would enlighten the world by the light of his word, would form the hearts of men by the influences of his spirit to obey his justice, and would restore to order by the gracious exercise of his power all the disorder that exists in the world, closed quote. So according to Calvin, and I think he's right, When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for knees to bend, for eyes to open, for ears to be unstopped, and for tongues to be loosed to praise and delight in the wisdom, goodness, and power of Almighty God now. Even as we also pray, come Lord Jesus, come in hearts, come into homes, come back to this lost and dying world, come. Yeah, all right, that's super helpful. Let's jump back into the text now at verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. To be clear, verse 3 gives us Matthew's editorial comment upon the ministry of John the Baptist. Sometimes it's hard to know when Jesus is speaking and when another character is speaking, when the editor is speaking. So it's helpful to be clear there. Verse 3 is Matthew telling us his summary, his estimation of the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew understands John as the forerunner prophesied by Isaiah. And Matthew goes on to tell us that he kind of even looked like Elijah. He had the costume down, he lived in the desert, and he spent a lot of time talking to God. John was the archetypal Old Testament prophet. That's what Matthew's saying. And he is doing what all Old Testament prophets did. He is pointing forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Notice that John was in the wilderness and people were going out to him. You have to leave the city. You have to exit the cultural mainstream in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's one of the major emphases in Matthew's gospel. The kingdom doesn't fit inside the existing culture of the world. Hebrews 13, 12 to 13 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, close quote. For all that we love the city nowadays, the Bible consistently talks about the desert, the wilderness, as the place where people go to hear God and to find the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, one of Matthew's major interests is the relationship between old ethnic Israel and the new Israel of God. Here we see many Jewish people drawing near and doing what John recommends in order to position themselves at the very gates of the kingdom, waiting for the message of Jesus. But here we also see some Jews, Jewish leaders in fact, who are very far from the kingdom. They are ethnic Jews, sons of Abraham, but they don't realize that trees can be cut down and branches can be cut off and others grafted in. The Apostle Paul talks about that also in Romans 11. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Close quote. So all people, Jew and Gentile, leader and common man, must enter into the kingdom of God the same way, through humility and penitence, and ultimately, as we shall see shortly, through faith in Jesus Christ. We're also being told that trees need to bear fruit in order to remain in the vineyard. No one gets to claim a place based on the faith of their ancestors. That isn't how the kingdom of heaven works. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here, John makes it very clear that what he is doing is merely preparatory in nature. He is baptizing people with water for repentance only. This is a a positional exercise. John says, "I'm, I'm trying to get you into the right posture. I am trying to put you in the best place to receive that which you can only receive from Jesus Christ. What you need, he says, is baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what is that? Well, the Holy Spirit part comes from Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. This is one of the most important, arguably, I think, the most important promise in all the Bible. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, closed quote. So that's the first part of John's statement. He is saying that Jesus, through his life and ministry, is going to bring that promise to pass. Hallelujah. The second piece is more debated. What does it mean to baptize someone with or in fire? Now, interestingly, Mark doesn't have that piece, which means that Matthew adds it. Matthew thinks it'll be helpful for us to to hear that. And so, of course, now we're more eager than ever to understand what it means. What does Matthew mean by being baptized with fire? 
three options are commonly advanced. First of all, John Calvin sees the fire as being a symbol of purification, as in he will fill you with the Holy Spirit and cause you to walk in the holy ways of God. Among modern commentators, Leon Morris also takes that view. He says, baptizing with the Holy Spirit goes along with baptizing with fire, which here stands for purification, closed quote. Secondly, others see the and fire part as a clear prediction of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and tongues of fire appeared and settled on the disciples. Thirdly, some see the and fire part as referring to the second coming and final judgment of Jesus as he cleanses the earth and brings in the fully consummated kingdom. See, for example, Luke 12, 49, where Jesus himself says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled, closed quote. The Apostle Peter seems to have been affected by that kind of language, uh, by that saying, perhaps, or by one very much like it. He writes in 2 Peter 3, 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, closed quote. Therefore, while all three options are possible, I think options one and three are most likely, with option three being the most likely of all. Consider the very next phrase in Matthew's gospel, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, that fire clearly refers to the final judgment. John is predicting the final separation and consignment of all people, either to the blessings of heaven or the torment of hell. Putting it all together, John the Baptist seems to be saying that Jesus Christ will bring ultimate blessing to some and ultimate condemnation to others. He will divide humanity like a sword. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So why did Jesus submit to baptism by John the Baptist? Jesus was not a sinner. He did not need to repent in order to prepare for the coming of the king. He was the king. He is the king. So why did Jesus get baptized? It appears that Jesus wanted to endorse the message of John, and he wanted to identify with the faithful remnant of Israel. He may also have intended the act to communicate that he was setting himself wholly aside to the purpose and service of the Lord. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Closed quote. The descending like a dove could mean that Jesus saw a vision of the Spirit as a dove, or it could mean that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. That is, he descended slowly and peacefully. It isn't clear which is intended. The declaration itself is the climactic event. 
as John has testified to Jesus, now his testimony is confirmed by the testimony of God himself. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ is here fully endorsed by Almighty God. The term son of God, as in this is my beloved son, at the very least means to communicate that Jesus reflects the character and attributes of God perfectly, that he does the work of God exclusively, and that he inherits the riches of God entirely. Jesus is all that we've been waiting for and more. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago there in the podcast audio about why Jesus felt the need to be baptized by John. I've always wondered about that. Obviously, Jesus wasn't a sinner, so you're saying he did it to identify with the people of Israel, and I would assume to also set an example for us to follow. Is that right? Yeah, I'm I'm sure that's part of it. Primarily, though, I think he was identifying with the faithful remnant who were coming out to be baptized by John. And then also, I think we should understand it as a pledge of allegiance or consecration. Uh, Interestingly enough, the word that we often use for baptism in many of our traditions, the word sacrament, originally meant to pledge allegiance. It's actually a word that was used to describe the pledge that a Roman soldier would make to his unit. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, these are my people, and I am 100% in it with them and for them. It is total identification and total consecration. I love that. Thanks for that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.